Good morning, brothers and sisters, friends. It's good to be with you today on a very beautiful morning. Let's go to God now in prayer and ask him for his help as we will now turn to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as sinful people knowing that you are the holy God of the universe. And so we come to you not hoping in our own goodness or trusting in our own righteousness, but trusting in Christ alone. And because we are in him and we are now called by your name, we come in confidence and ask for your help as we look to your word. We pray that you would minister to us by your Holy Spirit as we look to the Bible and we pray that you would be working in us to complete the good work that you have begun. We pray that as we look to Scripture this morning, that what we don't know you would teach us, that what we don't have you would give us, and that what we are not that you would make us. And we pray these things for Christ's sake, and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this morning, friends, we begin a a new sermon series through the book of Ephesians. It's always kind of an exciting day, at least it is for me as a preacher, to begin a new book of the Bible. Every book of Scripture is useful and profitable, and they contain within them different emphases and different perspectives by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit on God's truth. And so I look forward to, God willing, uh, 21 sermons through the book of Ephesians. As we come to the preached word this morning, I think it's a common notion amongst many Christians that the real stuff of the Christian life happens when we're by ourselves. If you were to ask many people, what is the most important thing in your Christian life, many would answer that it is perhaps their time alone with the Lord. Biblically, though, I don't think that's the case. Biblically speaking, the real stuff of the Christian life happens when we gather. It happens when we are together in Jesus' name. God has promised to minister to us uniquely when we assemble like this. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are distributed, after all, throughout the members of Christ's body. Our relationship with Jesus is certainly personal, but it is never private. We're about to open God's Word, and when it comes to God's Word, we open it together. We sit under it together. We submit ourselves to it together. We consider it together. We meditate on it together. We hear the Word of Christ, and we together receive Christ through that Word. God imparts and confirms, sustains and strengthens faith through the proclamation of Christ from his word that we partake in together. And God continues to do his transforming work in us as we behold and consider Christ together from his word. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up now to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one. And as you are making your way there, let me, may I make some preliminary remarks as I also fight the wind up here, uh, blowing my pages around. As far as the authorship and the occasion of this letter, the author is none other than the Apostle Paul. The date at which this letter was written 
scholars believe, is around 60 to 62 AD. There are a number of reasons for that. The imprisonment that Paul refers to at a couple of points in the letter to the Ephesians seems to be the same one that he references in his letter to the Colossians that is recounted in Acts chapter 28. The letter to the Ephesians, no surprise to anyone, is addressed to the church in Ephesus. And it also could have been intended for other churches in the region as the truth that it contains is not so specifically situated as it is universally applicable. So it's quite possible that this letter may have been circulated in other churches in the area around Ephesus. As far as Ephesus itself, it was a very significant city in the Roman Empire in the first century. It was the capital of the province of Asia on the west coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Many will know that most of the significant churches in the early, the first, especially the first century of the church, were in that area of the world. We know from the book of Acts that Paul had a very significant stay in Ephesus and very affectionate ties with the church in that city. You could even read of his farewell words to the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. They are sweet, they are sincere, they are intense, and they are affectionate. Big theological themes, just by way of some overview in the book of Ephesians, are these. The mystery of Christ and the gospel. How God's plan of redemption has unfolded and has been accomplished through the work of Jesus. We'll consider that at a number of points as Paul writes of that. The grace of God to us through Christ is a major theme in this letter, as is the centrality of the church in the purpose and plan of God. A 30,000-foot view of the letter would be to break it down into three chapters on the eternal plan of God to save his people through Christ, where Paul will extol the grace of God. He extols the redemptive work of Christ. He marvels at the plan of God that's always existed that has been progressively revealed and now has been made obvious with the coming of Christ. And then three chapters to close the letter on how God's people are to live together in the church in light of those wonderful gospel truths. Ephesians, in that way, is a great and clear example of the apostolic pattern of writing and even of reasoning with respect to the Christian life. The apostles always begin with the unshakable objective realities of what God has done for us. They begin with Jesus and with his work in the place of sinners and then move on from there to consider how we are to live. The apostles in that way have an understanding of the Christian life that is identity forward. It is status forward. By that I mean our identity is in Christ, and we live from that. Our status is justified, and we live from that. Our duty, therefore, is derived from our identity, not the, way, the other way around, excuse me. The apostles, and Paul in particular in this letter, speaks essentially this way to the saints. You are in Christ. You are justified. You have been saved by the plan of God through Christ. Now live this way together. Friends, give me just a moment to uh, get some things together up here. My phone is falling down. I got things blowing around everywhere. I'm going to try to get myself anchored in the Lord Jesus and in every other way, and we will proceed. With all that by way of overview and introduction, 
Let's now look together to the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Listen as I read these words. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. We're going to scrap that. We're going to go here. We thank God for his word. And we trust that all will be well as we move forward. Friends, I I have a two-part message for us this morning. We're going to consider the greeting from verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to consider the eternal plan of God from verses 3 to 6. The greeting of Paul in verses 1 and 2. The eternal plan of God in verses 3 to 6. And when we get to that second piece... There really aren't points within that. We're just going to go one verse at a time and consider them together. First, the greeting in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, we get the author and the recipients, quite simply. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The apostle Paul is the one writing the letter. He became an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, not his own will. He is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And now in verse 2, a very typical formula in greeting saints to whom he is writing, especially for Paul. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We began a series through Galatians about two and a half years ago as a church, and Paul uses these exact same words in Galatians 1, chapter 3. As we considered then, the apostle greets his readers and thereby us with grace and peace from God the Father and God the Son. Grace because we're sinners and peace because we have troubled consciences over our sin and because life is often fraught with trials. Paul then transitions into the body of the letter. And so now we today are going to consider four verses, verses three to six, about the eternal plan of God. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, there are not points within this. We will go one verse at a time. And consider them together. Verse 3. Put your eyes there. Let's look at it together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places. It's quite a verse. Paul praises God. This is how he begins his letter. Blessed be God. Praised be God. Who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he praises God. Because God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. A few observations here. First, this blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places is something that God has done. It is not something He will do. It is not something that He might do. It is something that is definitively done. Second, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Not a bunch of them, Not many of them, but with every spiritual blessing. This blessing, in other words, brothers and sisters, is complete. 
It lacks nothing. Nothing is withheld. It is not as though there are other blessings that we need to obtain or other blessings that we need to earn, other blessings that we need to seek that have not already been given to us in Christ by the grace of God. Another observation here on verse 3 is that God has done all of this through Christ. You see that there. Who has blessed us in Christ. It's by way of Christ that these blessings have come to us. Our union with Jesus quite literally means everything. And we might ask, well, how does one become united to Jesus in this way? How would we be united to Christ in this way that we would receive every spiritual blessing from God? The testimony certainly of Scripture is that we are united to Christ by faith. The testimony of Paul in all of his writings is that we are united to Christ by faith. And even here in the first chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, we see the same thing. If you look down to verse 12, Paul uses the language there about hoping in Christ. He talks about the apostles and the Jews being the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We are united to Christ by faith, by believing, by hoping, by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through our union with Christ by faith, God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, let's move on there. Even as He chose us, He being God the Father, chose us in Him, being Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Here, we get a look back to before the world began. In verses 4 and following, Paul is explaining what he wrote in verse 3. He is grounding what he wrote in verse 3, that in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is evidenced and this is seen and this is grounded in God choosing us in Christ and predestining us in love for adoption as sons through Christ. This is very important stuff theologically. It's very important stuff for our lives. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, this wonderful long sentence, this is one sentence in the original language, in this one wonderful sentence, we see and learn of what we refer to as the covenant of redemption. You heard McKenzie reference that before the service began, this covenant of redemption that God made with himself, that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made amongst themselves before the world got started to save a people, we see it very clearly right here in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. To illustrate this covenant of redemption, think of this with me, track with me for just a moment. The Bible, we talk about this all the time, the Bible is the story, the recording of God's plan of redemption. And what occurs in these pages is pretty epic as it unfolds through time and space. If Genesis chapter 1 is the first scene of the movie, then Ephesians 1 is like the flashback in the movie that goes back to events that occurred before the first scene, 
that makes sense of everything that transpires thereafter. You've all seen movies like this. So have I. We're watching them and we're tracking with the story. And then this flashback happens to long ago before what we've been watching ever happened. And that flashback changes everything in terms of how we understand the movie, how we understand the story. I would contend that these verses are like that. This is a flashback to before anything got started. God was, and this occurred amongst the Godhead. And then the world is made. And then scene one takes place. And in that regard, what we read about here in Ephesians 1 is what the entirety of the Bible is about. It's what the history of the world is about. It is the unfolding of God's covenant of redemption in time and space. That is what is recorded for us here in the witness of redemptive history. It sheds light, Ephesians 1, 3-14 does. It sheds light on everything that happened from Genesis 1 even to now. And from Genesis 1, thinking holistically all the way through the book of Revelation. It is an unfolding of this God's eternal covenant and plan of redemption. So back to the verse itself. We see that God chose us in Christ. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And He did that so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. This sounds like other places in Scripture. This sounds like things that God revealed through the apostles in other places. This idea, this principle, this truth that God did what He did and does what He does for us so that we might be holy and blameless before Him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is like Revelation 7 regarding the great multitude who no one can count before the Lord. And John writes in Revelation 7, then he's beholding this great multitude and he writes, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these? Who are these people clothed in white robes? And where have they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, friends, brothers, sisters, God did not choose us because we were something. He chose us that we might be something that is holy and blameless before Him forever through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's put our eyes now on verse 5. Tail end of verse 4, we see those two words, in love, and then it goes on in verse 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. 
in love, the Father predestined us for adoption as his children through Jesus. All of this according to the purpose of the Father's will. A few things here as we observe this verse. As you survey verses 4 and 5 here in Ephesians chapter 1, survey them even now as you sit, and perhaps later today or later this week, survey these verses and consider. Consider the certainty of your salvation. Consider how solid and unshakable your salvation is. Your salvation and mine has roots that go down into eternity. Our salvation thereby is no fragile thing. Secondly, as you consider these verses, consider how God has loved us, his children, from before the world began. Before we were born, before we had done anything, good or bad. And we might ask, well, why then did he love us? The answer is because he loves us. Why did he love us? Because he loves us and because he is keeping his covenant to save us. The answer as to why he loves us is found in God. It's not found in us. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses writes to the Israelites about how God had chosen them to be a holy nation. Holy meaning to be set apart, to be his unique possession in all the earth. Unless they misunderstand why that had happened, how that had happened, Moses says it's not because you were the greatest of all peoples. In fact, you were smaller in number than any of the other peoples of the earth. It is because the Lord loves you that he has done this. And it is because he is keeping his promises that he has sworn to your fathers. God loves us because he loves us. And he is keeping his promise that he has made even amongst himself, the father and the son have made promises and commitments to save sinful people like us. We see that our adoption as sons occurs through Christ. As you put your eyes back on the verse, perhaps you're noticing a pattern here as we've even just been looking at these few verses this morning. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. How? In Christ. We were chosen. How? In Him. We were predestined to be adopted as God's children. How? Through Him. Our salvation, everything about it, is only because of Christ. And it is certain because of Christ. Only Jesus could accomplish what we needed. As we confess this morning from the London Baptist Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 1, of Christ the mediator and what he came to do, we will confess other paragraphs from that section of the confession undoubtedly as we move forward in Ephesians because it is beautiful in what it articulates. It takes the truth of Scripture and articulates what Christ has done in his role as mediator between God and man. He took on 
our injured flesh. He took on humanity. He was truly man and truly God. He was sinless so that he could then offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. He was fully, truly man in order to die for men. He was God so that he might be the sinless one. Only Christ could accomplish that atonement and that satisfaction for our sin. And only Christ, as a man, could obey and keep God's law perfectly so that we might be counted righteous through Him by faith. And then Jesus, as a man, was resurrected from the grave so that through Him we might be bodily resurrected one day. In Adam... Sin became our reality. In Adam, we were tragically corrupted and marred. In Adam came death, the first man. But through Christ comes righteousness and resurrection and eternal blessedness. Christ has done everything that is necessary for salvation and we simply receive what He has done for us by believing in Him. And because Jesus has done everything necessary, we are secure. There is nothing that could ever be required of us that Jesus has not provided. Another observation on verse 5. Not only has God loved us from before the foundation of the world, not only has He adopted us as sons through Christ, He has done all of this according to the purpose of His will. This has always been his plan, to do it this way. We will rejoice over the reality, often as Christians, and we should, that God knows the future. That's a comforting thought. But to simply say that God knows the future is not an accurate presentation of how God is depicted in Scripture, how he has revealed himself in the Bible. The emphasis of the Bible is not simply that God knows the future. The emphasis of the Bible is on God's purposefulness in planning the future. As he reveals in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 46, he tells the prophet that he is the one who has declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of of prey from a far country, the man of power from the east. He's talking of Cyrus. And then he says, I have purposed these things and I will accomplish them. I have said them and I will do it. I am the Lord. This is God. He is purposeful in everything that he does. He holds the future and knows it because he has planned it. And he has purposed from before the world began to redeem a people through Christ. It is his will, and he will see to it that this plan comes to fruition. It's very easy to see how Jesus is kind of in this plan of redemption because he is the one who is accomplishing redemption. But we should never get it confused for one moment that God the Father is not just as much in this plan of redemption as the Son is. Put your eyes now on verse 6. We see that all of this, this blessing us, 
with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places, that God's choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, that his predestining us for adoption as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, is all to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So not only is this plan of redemption according to the purpose of the Father's will, it is also to the praise of his glorious grace. The Bible is not just clear about God's purposefulness in planning the future, as I've already mentioned. The Bible is also quite clear that God is very concerned for His own glory. We read that from Isaiah 42.8 in the scriptural call to worship this morning. I am the Lord. There is no other. I am God. There is no other. My glory I will give to no one else, nor my praise to carved idols. Note, which is appropriate and good that God would be about His own glory. He is the most awesome being in the universe. He is the only perfect, righteous one. The question must be asked, who else would we have Him exalt if not Himself? It's right that God would pursue His own glory and His own renown. But here's a big question when it comes to us and our eternal fate. And when it comes to our safety and our security and our salvation, how does the Father get glory for Himself? In a primary way, God gets glory for Himself through His Son. Through His Son who took on flesh, Jesus Christ, the God-man, and what His Son did. You see, our God gets glory for Himself through the redemption of sinners. He gets glory for Himself by redeeming sinful people in a perfectly gracious, merciful, and yet just and righteous way. His plan of salvation is beautiful in its wisdom, in its perfection, and in its consistency, how everything that God requires for salvation, Jesus accomplished. Everything that we have botched and failed, Jesus atoned for. So God, with perfect righteousness and in perfect justice, may look upon us and say, you are now righteous because of Him. God's holiness and God's grace are most magnificently on display in the work of Christ, most pointedly at the cross. God gets glory for Himself through the work of Jesus in the redemption of sinners like you and like me. Our God is a Savior. And all God's people say, Amen. Praised be God and praise Him for His glorious grace. As we look back to the verse, we see that not only is God's grace to be praised, we see that our blessing in the Beloved, who is Christ, is inextricably tethered to God's grace. To the praise of His glorious grace with which, that's referring to His grace, He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Christ. You see, friends, God is absolutely merciful toward us. And that matters. And He is also gracious. And that matters. Grace and mercy are not the same thing. You probably realize that. 
Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That is namely judgment and wrath. So when we say that God is merciful, that means that we are not facing the judgment and wrath from Him that we are due because of our sin. But then grace means getting what you don't deserve. Namely God's favor and eternal life and blessedness. So not only in God's plan of redemption, in His ways with us, do we not get what we deserve, we get something that we could have never deserved. Namely, eternal life in Christ Jesus. And this eternal blessedness comes to us only through God's Son. So as we conclude our time this morning, you may ask, like, what's the takeaway from the passage? What's a takeaway for me from Ephesians 1, 1 to 6? I think we look at this passage and we say, my goodness, what grace and what love does God have toward us? We look at this text and we say, my goodness, what sovereignty and what purposefulness describes and is our God in how he operates. We look at this text and we say, my goodness, what security there is for me in the love and the sovereignty and the grace and the purposefulness of God. We look at this text and we say, my goodness, what a great salvation has our God worked for us. And we take heart as we look to Christ, even as we live life under the sun. So friends, I don't know everything going on in your life right now. I don't know everything about the week that you've had. There have probably been some good things. And there have probably been some bad things. There has been uncertainty. The only thing certain in this life in one sense is that it is uncertain. There has been, I'm sure, some kind of pain and suffering. Such is the nature of life in a fallen world. There has certainly been the battle against sin. So how sweet and reassuring is it to know that as far as God is concerned, we have been adopted and loved and known since before he even made the world. Ours is a living hope, and ours is an eternal hope. Not just looking forward, but even as we look back. Our hope is grounded in God, who is eternal. Jesus came, and through him we have been saved. We have been ransomed. And we have been redeemed. And we have been forgiven. All to the praise of God's glorious grace. So as is appropriate, let's go to God now in prayer and praise Him for His grace and then ask Him to continue to be with us as we will now come to His table in just a moment. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise. We praise you for your plan of redemption. That you, being God, are even mindful of us, creatures as small and insignificant as we are. We praise you that in your purposes and in your grace and in your love and in your mercy, that you planned before you made anything that you would save a people. 
we give you praise and thanks that we are among that number, those of us who have trusted in your Son. We pray for ourselves as we battle sin and as we live life in fallen bodies and live life in a fallen world, that you would remind us with truths like we've considered this morning, that you would remind us of how secure we are, that you would remind us of how extravagant your grace and your love for us are, that you would stir us with the truths of your love and the fact that you have adopted us as your children. We pray that we would be stirred as we consider how Christ has accomplished all of this for us. So we pray for you to continue to work in our lives, in our hearts. We pray for you to continue to conform us into the image of Jesus. We pray that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we might love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, we pray as is written in your word that you would, as we behold the Lord Jesus, transform us from one degree of glory to another. We pray that you would be doing that work even as we come to receive Christ by faith in the bread and the juice in just a moment. We thank you. We love you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.